Our, our God is great, isn't he? And uh, last Sunday we, uh, we gathered together and enjoyed a wonderful time celebrating his greatness and the fact that he rose from the dead, that our Savior was crucified and on the third day he conquered Satan, sin and death. And as Christians, every Lord's Day we celebrate the resurrection. It's not just on Easter, but every Sunday why we celebrate and gather on Sunday, because it was the day in which our Lord rose. And last Sunday, though, was particularly special. We enjoyed um, a time of sweet fellowship beforehand. We had lots of food and breakfast and, and, uh, and had our tummies filled, and, and hopefully it woke us up, and we came in and, and enjoyed time of worship. And maybe afterwards you went home and uh, whether you relaxed on the couch or you uh, enjoyed time with family and friends, I'm sure you had an enjoyable Sunday. But during that time, I doubt any one of us actually feared for our lives. We did this quite uh, blissfully. We enjoyed one another. We worshipped the risen Savior together without fearing that anything would happen to us. While we were enjoying our Easter Sunday, that same day in Pakistan, brothers and sisters in Christ were gathered, fellowshipping just like we were. They were out in the park where a suicide bomber came in and blew himself up in their midst. Seventy people, or over 70 people, were killed with hundreds of others severely injured. And many of those who were killed were women and children. The last report I saw last night was a third of the deaths were young children. It's kind of sobering to think about our brothers and sisters around the world who face persecution, who are gathering, and I'm sure those same believers who remain are gathering and their service is a, li a little bit more somber doesn't mean that we don't appreciate the freedoms we have. We, we cherish them. We're grateful for them. But we need to remember the church of the Lord Jesus Christ faces opposition. Here in the U.S., we don't face the same kind of persecution. We don't face the same kind of opposition as many of our brothers and sisters around the world do. For the most part, we don't have to fear each time we gather that, that government officials are going to come in here and, and, and say you're not a state-sanctioned church and, and haul us off like some of our brothers and sisters in China have to fear. We don't have to worry that someone in our city and our neighborhood may walk in here and blow us up. Or any other religious group may come in here, kill us, and take our children to indoctrinate them. All these things are things that brothers around the world are worrying about right now are pleading to our great God, Lord, deliver us today. And we come and we trust you. Although at the current time we don't experience persecution at the same degree as these do, it doesn't mean that we do not face opposition. Here in the States, this opposition just takes a different form, a different um, disguise, if you want to put it that way. It takes the form of the deceitfulness of riches that plagues and tempts each one of us. The lure of the pride of life and fame. The empty promises of the so-called sexual freedom and personal autonomy. 
that I can live my life however I choose. It's the onslaught of temptation that you really don't need the Lord. I mean, we live in abundance. We don't go often wondering where the next meal is going to come from because we can provide for ourselves. And so it's tempting to think and live that we don't need the Lord. We're tempted by the world's values and goods, that they will supply our every need and they will fulfill our every desire. And we tend to think that these things aren't threatening, yet these very things destroy families. They cause people to walk away from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, here in the U.S., those who oppose the gospel and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they may not kill us, but they oppose us through persuasive arguments, lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God so that you and I will not take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. And these things by which the world, the ideas that raise themselves up against our God, they have blinded many. So that when we come and we offer good news, they reject it. Such forces are promoted through our media. Just think of TV, music, movies, internet. It's instilled in our education system, and I'm thinking from kindergarten all the way to university settings, and perpetuated by people we rub shoulders with every day. We live in a world that has been promoted by secularism, a world that does not need God. And therefore, if there is no God, you can do whatever you please. And those temptations, and when the culture is so strong, and the buy-in is so strong, you begin to think, we're on the outside looking in, and that's actually true. But it can also lure the weak, those who are not strong. Some of you are, plaguing those, are being plagued by those temptations right now. Some of you reject the Word of God because you've bought into the world's system. And for some of you, on that day, you will cry out, Lord, Lord, and He will respond to you, I never knew you. Here's the question for us. The question for us as a church, how do we overcome the opposition? I mean, it seems unstoppable. How are we going to compete with the power of the world to get the gospel out, to preach Christ? Maybe you've shared the gospel and, and you see someone entangled and gripped and does not want to, to leave their life of sin or just flat out does not believe the truth of the gospel. And they have persuasive arguments or things they've been taught, things that they've just grown up with. And you're like, Lord, how can I compete with that? How do we proclaim the gospel of a crucified Savior to a world that has been told they don't need a Savior? This morning I want to help us answer that question by looking at Acts chapter 12. Because what we're going to see is that the church is always going to face opposition, whatever form it takes. And here the church is facing opposition 
But here's what we're going to learn, that when we do face such persecution, we face opposition, when governments organize to stamp us out, whether it's through killing us or through overturning ideas, what must we do? Here's the point of the sermon. We must turn to God in fervent prayer because he is able to deliver and execute justice. We need to be a people who turn to the God of the universe, who spoke the world into being. He holds the world together by the power of his own word. As we see in the Old Testament, who has the hearts of kings in his hand and can turn them like the streams of the river any way he chooses. We're going to see that in our text this morning. And that I pray that we would be a church who prays to be amazed by our unstoppable God. Who's a praying church. Let's look here in our text. We're going to see here the fervent prayer of the church. And here's the situation in Acts. At about that time, Herod the king had laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison. This is King Herod. Now, in the Bible, there's several King Herods. You think of the first one, maybe, when Jesus was born. That was Herod the Great, maybe the most, noto- uh, most notable Herod, who uh, slaughtered all the newborn baby boys in an attempt to take out the Messiah, the rival king of the Jews. But then there's another Herod. You might think of Herod who chopped off John the Baptist's head. That was Herod of Antipas. That's Herod the Great's son. But here we have another Herod. This is Herod Agrippa I. And so they've got quite a reputation. As we see from the grandfather and the father, they all oppose the people of God. They oppose God and his people. And Herod Agrippa, he had been given authority. He's a a Roman official. He's been given authority by the emperor to rule over the regions of Galilee, Judea, and Samaria. And so this area in Jerusalem, as we're seeing, is actually Roman Empire territory. Yes, there's the religious leaders, there's the high priest, but at the end of the day, there is a top dog, and his name is King Herod. Herod, he was one who loved to have the praises of the people. In fact, he would schmooze up to with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. And he even, particularly with the Sadducees, would offer them influence and power if they would help sway the opinions of the people to the Roman Empire. Herod was a people pleaser. And he loved the accolades. He loved the popular opinion. He loved the straw polls. He loved all the polls of CNN and Fox News. He wanted to see his numbers up. And he would do whatever it took to keep them that way. 
Well, it's interesting here. Look at what Luke records for us in verse 1. That Herod began to lay violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Here's what I want you to see. We're only going to get an example through James and Peter, but very much likely so that there's more. Some within the church are going to experience the brunt of the opposition more than others. We need to realize that. And oftentimes it's with the leaders. Those of you who are most bought into the church you're probably going to be the first ones to be picked off. Or where the temptation, the opposition is going to come most heavily. And he begins with James. Now James at this time, this is not James the brother of Jesus, this is not James the leader of the church at this time, but it is James, one of the apostles. But he's one of the lesser known apostles. And so like any good politician, you want to press the issue, you want to kind of, um, um, you want to kind of, be a little bit more progressive, you want to press your agenda, you, you float the balloon and see how the people will respond. And so he goes after a lesser known leader in the church. He goes after James. Let's kill him with the sword. Let this movement known as the church know that they're not going to mess with the Roman Empire. And let's see how the people respond. If they get upset, well, it's just James. We haven't taken out Peter or one of the other top leaders of the church. We've, we've just taken out one of the secondary leaders. And if we take some flack, oh, we'll live with it. We'll take a little hit to the polls. But next month, we'll, we'll kind of rise back and we'll know what we're dealing with. So he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. But verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded. Okay, we got the green light. And here's just something for us to think about. We've seen this in the book of Acts. As persecution begins to rise, it's often curtailed by popular opinion. And as the culture, as the masses begin to change, as you can get popular opinion on your side, you can get away with a lot more. And if you just look at our culture, things where the balloon was floated, maybe in a television show, controversial relationship a controversial idea yeah there's a little flare up but then it kind of dies away but then the next kind of tv series and a couple years later it's a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger or the things that a politician wouldn't say maybe in elections past is now able to say it because they floated the balloon and they they now know okay i can get away with that and as we look at our culture it is going to increasingly come, become apparent that we don't share the same values. And pretty soon, as popular opinion grows, all it takes is for it to please the people before it's okay for people to come in and bomb you. I was watching just news reports about the Pakistani um, case popular opinion though is you have a whole nother group who thinks this is okay and so what are you going to do about it this was a minority attacked and the government gives lip service oh we're going to do something about it but there's no pressure anymore all it takes is a flip of the opinion and this is what's happening here opposition is proceeding and so now he says i'm going to go after the top guy in the church 
take out the leadership, you'll stamp out the group. And we see here, before we look at Peter, that he killed him with the sword. This is pretty important. Because previously, opposition has come from the religious leaders. We think of Stephen, when he was martyred, how was he killed? He was killed by stoning. That's the Jewish way of execution. The sword was the execution of the empire. And what has gone on is this church movement is beginning to grow. There's one called the Christ, the king that this people are are proclaiming. And you can't have a rival king in the Roman Empire. You remember before Pilate, when he presents Jesus as, Behold your king, what do the people say? We have no king but Caesar. They knew. They knew how to play the game. Well, now the church isn't playing. We have no king but Christ. And so he kills him by the sword. And so he decides he's going to do the same to Peter. And so he imprisons Peter, and Peter is locked up. But notice we're given a little bit more information about what Peter's kind of locking up. looks like verse 4 middle of the verse, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. These four squads were probably meant to entail that they had people at the four watches of the guard. That there was no one, there was no point in time by which Peter was going to break out of jail. And if you remember earlier in chapter 5, that's exactly what had happened. Peter, and I think John, were in prison. But an angel of the Lord came to them, verse 19, and opened the prison doors and brought them out. They had already done this once before. They had heard, this guy can break out of jail. They just didn't know how he broke out of jail. So this time, you aren't going to get out, Peter. Look at verse 6. Peter was sleeping between two guards. Okay, they're sleeping with them. They're in the cell right there. You're not getting away. And not only that, they bound him with two chains. Not just one, but two sets of handcuffs. We're going to make sure you cannot get out. What are we seeing here? We're seeing that the opposition is humanly impossible to overcome. I mean, there is no way out for Peter. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at the world and I look at the onslaught of the ideas being promoted, the agendas, the people in power. We don't have a voice. So how are we going to compete? I often think on a more personal level, I see Christians fall when they're lured by other tempters I think of every time I walk I drive past theater X the lure of many men who get sucked in and every time I go by that thing I'm always like Lord either save the people who run that thing or put an end to it and yet it destroys how, how do I compete How do I compete with women who are lured by predators 
who tell them they love them, but they don't, and they lead them away. How do I compete with that? We're going to see what the church does. Verse 5. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. There's nothing they're going to do. They can't take on the Roman Empire. What's interesting here is although on the one side the king exercises his own political authority to bind and humiliate Peter in public prison, on the other side we see the church. We're going to find out in a private home, small numbers comparatively, but appeals to a superior authority for Peter's rescue. This is where we struggle, isn't it? I think we often forget who our God is. That kingdoms rise and fall at His bidding. And that He is in control of all the events of history. And so we can come to our Lord in prayer. And the idea here is that they were eager, they were fervent, they were pleading and and crying out to their God, save. Think of Jesus' prayer for Peter. You might remember it in the Gospels. Jesus says to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Get that picture? Jesus is going to shake you up like a rag doll. You might expect Jesus to say, but I've taken care of it. He's not going to do it. That's not what he says. Now, what's going to happen? Opposition is going to come to some of you. Peter, Satan is going to have his way with you. But Jesus prays for him. And this is what he prays. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's what this prayer looks like. When opposition comes. And that's what I pray for some of you. I know some of you are struggling, whether it's temptation or economic struggles or family issues or health issues. And yes, we pray, Lord, please eliminate those. But ultimately, my prayer for you guys is that when the trials come, the opposition comes, that your faith may not fail. Jesus says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You're going to go through a trial, Peter, but I pray that you'll come out on the other side. I think of Paul's words to the church in Colossae. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom. Why? so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. That's what our prayers look like. So even when trials come, and you see the prayers on on our, our bulletin, and yes, most of them have to do with health concerns and issues, but primarily, Lord, may their faith not fail. May you strengthen them through this trial. One of my favorite passages, which is one that I'm sure is in nobody's underlining in their Bible, it's in Colossians chapter 4. It's when you kind of get the weird names of people you don't recognize. 
And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul mentions a man named Epaphras. I love this so much that I even suggested when Grace was being born, before we knew she was a, uh, if she was being a girl or a boy, I said, if it's a boy, can we name him Epaphras? Sarah's like, no. <laughs> but Paul says this about Epaphras. Epaphras is the pastor at Colossae. He's come to visit Paul in prison, but Paul commends him, and he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, he greets you, and he says, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Why? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That word struggle is agonizomai. It's to agonize. It's to fight. It's a word used of the Olympians who would agonize and beat their bodies. And they would train. And Paul uses that metaphor and says, your pastor struggles on your behalf so that you may stand. I want us to be a church who struggles in prayer. Not struggling as that to do it, but we're wrestling with God. We're pleading, we're praying, we're begging, we're weeping that their faith may not fail when the opposition comes. That, Lord, you would deliver us from evil. Lord, that your kingdom will come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That you would act. And we pray, and maybe as you, you look through the bulletin prayer requests, or prayer requests that are given in your community group or, or Sunday school, and that we would pray that people through these things would grow in their maturity so as to withstand opposition. That we pray that people would not walk away from the Lord when they seem so entangled in sin, and they continue returning to it and returning to it, and it keeps destroying them. And you're saying, I have told you over and over till I'm blue in my face. And it seems that they won't go. We pray, Lord, may they not walk away. That we would not be casualties to the opposition. And that God's name would not be maligned by the opposition. Have you ever wanted to pray that? Lord, Act. Because the world thinks they can do whatever they want. And they can mock you. And they can mock your people. And they don't think they have to give an account for it. They can destroy lives with their sinful ideas. Lord, act. That's what we see here with this church. Praying, Lord, deliver Peter. Prayer was made to God for him. I want us to be a people who pray to God for each other. For the movement, for the word of God to go forward. When the oppositions come, that we may withstand it. That we would not be a casualty to it. Where do we do this? We try to do this on Sunday mornings. Some of you wonder, why do we have these extended prayer times where well, sometimes it gets really awkward and we got things on the screen and we're asking everybody to huddle up and pray because the church was earnest in prayer. That's why. We also ask that we do it in our community groups. It's a time where we get a little bit more intimate, it's less awkward. 
We pray. And I encourage you, when you do that, and, and, and oftentimes it's okay, the ailments, the struggles, the economic things, they come up. Those are real struggles we do want to lift up to the Lord. But are we praying like this? That we would not stumble in our faith, but that this would grow us. That this would further the gospel. We've even tried to do special times of corporate prayer. We, we introduced to that with our Good Friday service. I'm so thankful for those of you who came. We're trying to think of ways that we can be more of a church who's earnestly praying. Because as we see in the book of Acts, over and over again, the success of the gospel happens when the people are praying. That's when the hand of the Lord is upon them, when His people are humbled and they recognize the divine authority that is at their is offered to them. And I just want you to know, and I ask you to pray for your pastors. This is something that is on our heart. Jamin and I in particular have been talking about this. How do we lead our church to pray? And, and we understand some of us don't know how to pray. It's awkward. We've never been there. Uh, this is stretching. How do we grow? How do we lead us in a progress to where we're regularly earnest in prayer? What does that look like? Some of you I know have come, hey, can we set up a prayer meeting? Yes, we want to do that. We're trying to figure out how it all fits in. Maybe it is uh, more in the community groups. Maybe it's being more intentional here in this corporate gathering time. But whatever it is, and as we pray and as we brainstorm, what's the best way for us to do that? I, I want us to have our sights toward that end. So why should we be fervent in prayer? Because that's honestly where we struggle you know, what's, what's it do? You know, what's going to benefit us? Here we're going to see the reason we pray is because our God is able to act. He's able to do something. And here we're going to see this amazing deliverance of God in verses 6 through 17. And we see here that Peter's now in prison. He's double chained. He's got two soldiers around him with four squads that are rotating so that no one is ever, or that Peter's never out of anyone's sight. And that night, verse 7, behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And the angel said, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. I mean, this is pretty remarkable. You've got soldiers in there, and they don't recognize what's happening. I don't know if they're in a sleep-induced coma or what, but a light has been shown. And this is the middle of the night. Turn on a light, you see it. The angel is talking and Peter can hear the chains. Have you ever dropped chains? You know, they make lots of noise. But yet it doesn't matter. The guards are unsuspecting. And in verse 9, he went out and followed him. And Peter, he didn't know what was going on. He didn't know what was being done by the angel. If He didn't know if it was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was in a dream. You ever experienced that? You wake up, was that real or did I just dream that? That's what's going on. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, 
just passed right by them. Then they're faced with a big iron gate, locked. Oh, no problem. It opened for them on its own accord. It's like at Target when you walk in and they can just open up. It's always cool. There it is. And they led him out to this one street, and the angel left. Done. Just like that. Our God, no problem. I mean, this was top secret. This was like when you think of in those, those, uh, those movies where that criminal is like in a straitjacket. He's got a mask on him. He's got like guys with tasers next to him, walking him all the way there. Lord, I got this. Angel of the Lord came. And Peter, when he came to himself, verse 11, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. Peter awakes up. He's like, this isn't a dream. I'm out of here. And here's what we see here. Luke is helping us see God often surprises us when he answers prayer. Peter, who's actually the recipient of this, and no doubt, I, can't, I would imagine Peter had been praying as well. It's happening, and it's taking him forever to get with the program and realize, oh, God's actually answering my prayers. It's not a dream. He's really done this. Notice what he says at the end of verse 11. He says, God has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. God does what no one was expecting. On both sides of the equation. What were the people expecting? They're expecting that night and the next morning, Peter be coming out and being killed with the sword. Change of plans. God acted. Let's look at the church's amazement. Peter, when realizing this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. This is verse 12. Where there were many gathered together and were praying. So they're in a home. They're gathered together. They're pleading. They're praying. What are they praying for? No doubt, Lord, deliver Peter. Lord, act. Don't let Herod do this. And no doubt, probably speaking in general, he has turned his hand towards us. He has targeted our church. Please stop this. While they were doing this, Peter came and he knocked on the door, verse 13. And a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice and in her joy, this is pretty comical, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. She's like, Peter! Yeah! Runs, forgot Peter. And she comes in, hey, hey, stop the praying. Peter's at the door. The Lord answered our prayer. And the church said, really, this is great? Yeah. No. That's not what the church does. Look at this. Verse 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. You're crazy. It's interesting how the Lord works. This is very reminiscent of when Jesus rose from the grave and he chose the least likely messenger. Here we have a female slave. Someone who probably has been serving everybody and going unnoticed. And the Lord revealed his answered prayer to her first. It's often the humble who see God at work. And she 
Saul got it answered. She was eager to believe. She was so eager that she forgot letting Peter actually in. They go on, you're crazy. But they kept insisting, or she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying to her, it's his angel. Now, I don't have time to go into what's going on here, but bottom line is, is they think it's his spirit. They think it, Peter's dead. There's a Jewish belief that, that God has angels protecting and guiding his people, and I don't say that just Jewish. It's in the New Testament as well. Here's an example of it. But the belief was is that these angelic beings would resemble their human counterparts. It's kind of mind-boggling. You know, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, he had to tell them, I'm not a ghost. Because they, they, that would have been acceptable. It might change your thinking about if ghosts are for real. But anyway, whatever it was, it couldn't have been that the Lord answered our prayer. That was not on their radar, and how often does that happen? We pray, but we, we go on, and, and we don't think for a second that God might actually answer it. That's kind of humbling. This is, in one sense, comforting to us because we see ourselves in this response. The early church, oh, yeah, they're fervent in prayer. We want to be there, but they, they do, just like us. We offer prayer requests to community group. We pray for things in here, and we'll walk out of here, and it won't be another thought to our mind. Nevertheless, God acts even when we lack faith, and that's encouraging. I don't know if you've ever had this where you, you maybe prayed for someone, and then you kind of stopped, and you forgot about it, and God answers the prayer, and you're like convicted. I, I stopped. I didn't pray, and yet God still acted. But other on, the, on the other hand, there's still a rebuke for us. We often lack faith that God is mighty and able to do something. He's able to do more than we could ask or think or imagine. And that's exactly what's happened. They've been praying, Lord, do something, but they can't imagine that Peter has any way to get out, and yet he does it. And so in verse 16, notice, but Peter continued knocking, hey guys, I'm still here. As y'all try to figure this out, we can solve this right now. I'm, I'm outside. And when they opened, they saw him, and what happened? They were amazed. I don't know about you, but I want to be amazed by what God does. I want to be praying prayers that when he acts, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. My jaw drops. And Peter motions to them. He says, but be quiet. Be quiet. I'm sure they're cheering, hooting, hollering. Hey, hey, the guards... <laughs> They could probably be looking for me, so let's keep it down. And he began to tell them the things, or he began to describe them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Wouldn't that be sweet? Times of prayer. We pray for things, pray for one another, and then we come back together and we tell and describe how God answered. Peter, he can't stick around. He says, tell these things to James. Now, this isn't James, the guy who just got killed. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And to the brothers, tell the, the other guys. And then he departed and went to another place. He goes, i got to get out of town. Hey, Lord, deliver me, but I'm not going to test this. Let's get out of here. <laughs> so God did something. And so why do we pray? Because God is able to deliver. He's able to rescue his people. 
we, are, we do see a, a, a tension here. James was killed, but Peter was released. Does that mean that God didn't, couldn't have acted, couldn't have done something for James? No, it just means that we don't know why God does certain things. Maybe it was that James died so that it would wake up the people to pray. And that when we most often prayer, pray is when trouble actually does strike. We don't know why, but God in His mysterious plan is still in control. At least what we do know is that He's not finished with Peter. Peter will die one day, but just not right now. Which should give us confidence when we go out into our work week and we go and we start representing Christ. Hey, I don't have anything to fear because if God needs to use me, I'll still be here at the end of the day. And if not, then I go be with Him. So not only should we pray because our God is able to deliver us, but because He's able to exact swift justice upon those who oppress us. We see this in verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Now imagine they wake up. Uh, he's gone. Uh-oh. You know why they'd be saying uh-oh? Because... If you were a soldier and you lost a prisoner, you know what the punishment was? Death. Uh-oh. And that's exactly what happened. And after Herod searched for him, no doubt they were searching the homes. Maybe they even came to the home of Mary, knocking on the door, searching, looking for Peter. Good thing Peter left. They could not find him. And what does Herod do? He ordered that they should be put to death. Now, this is quite interesting. God's acting here. Those soldiers who opposed the people of God, who went along with Herod's wicked plan, God gave it to them. But he allows, this is how the kingdom of Satan works. God can let it take its course and it can destroy itself. Herod's trying to stomp out the church and he ends up killing his own men. Trying to oppose God. All right. Look what happens when you try to fight me. So God allows Herod to destroy his own people. But Herod's not going to get off the hook. Herod's got his coming. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now we don't know why. But this is political relations. Hey, we're overseeing you. You're not doing what I'm liking. Maybe they don't, haven't praised him the way he wants. Whatever the reason, he's upset with them. And so this is some other occasion. This is days later. You might be thinking, Herod just got off the hook with everything. Well, he's angry with Tyre and Sidon. And, and they came to him with one accord. Now, this is probably their leaders, their representatives. And they had persuaded a man named Blastus, the king's chamberlain. He took care of the king's chambers. He was in his uh, personal assistant, if you want to say. Whatever the situation, whatever the conflict was, they had persuaded the king, Herod's uh, personal assistant, and they're like, hey, let's talk some sense into Herod. So they asked for peace. Why? Because their country depended on the king's country for food. This is Roman Empire, and somehow there was a deal, and hey, you, you do what I ask, and we'll continue to give you food. And so they wanted to play the game. They knew Herod was angry, and so they were going to come to a, a reasonable conclusion because they wanted to eat. And so in other words, Herod has the upper hand. 
He's got them at his bidding. And they do exactly what he wants most. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. He waxed eloquently before them in his royal robes. Just see what Josephus, a Jewish historian at the time, describes of this event. He says that the king's flatterers were astonished at the radiance of the silver robe. And when it was touched by the first rays of the rising sun and addressed him as a god. They saw he had this robe with glistening silver on it. And when the, the sun rays, it beamed light back at him like glory. And when he spoke, they said that, addressed, they, that Herod addressed them like a god. And they began crying out to him, be gracious to us. We have reverenced you as a human being, but henceforth we confess you to be more than a mortal. What does Luke say happens? And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod was like, yes, give it to me. I like that. That's right. I am more than a man. I am God. I am a God to you. He let it go to his head. Remember when the angel came to Peter and struck him on the side? Look what happens here. Verse 23, immediately the angel of the Lord struck him. But it wasn't that the chains fell off. No, he struck him down. Because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms. And breathed his last. He was eaten by worms. That would have been a sight. I don't know what's going through your head, but have you ever seen that TLC, The Monsters Inside Me? Or whatever happens, they played with bird poop, they got in their eye, and now they got stuff in them. I don't know how it happens. But that's exactly what actually Josephus says occurs. Josephus, continuing telling this story, says that, that Herod's pontificating, and he looks and he sees a bird. I don't know what the deal is. But he sees a bird, and... Herod comes to the conclusion, uh-oh, I don't know why that. But listen to what Josephus describes. As he was speaking, and a severe pain arose in his belly, and he began in a most violent manner. And then he was carried away to his chambers. Blastus had to take him away. Whatever it was, worms were inside his intestines probably, eating him from the inside out. Excruciating pain. God acted. God is able to deal with those who oppose His church, oppose His gospel, oppose His people. God is able to deal with those who prey on the weak in our midst. Those who deceive women to kill their babies, who tell them when they come into that abortion clinic, that's no baby. You don't have to worry. We'll take care of you. Those who prey on the poor, whether it's lotto systems, pawn shops, or uh, quick cash fast shops. Oh yeah, here, here's some cash. This will solve your problems. You're indebted to us now. Those who promote ungodliness in every form. Those forces that entangle people. God is able to take care of these things. In His own timing. 
so that they do not ultimately hinder the progress of the gospel. That's exactly what happens. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod tried to stomp it out. Brothers and sisters, the forces of evil are at work, not only here in America, but all over the world, trying to stomp out the gospel. And it may look as if it is, it is winning. But what we see here is our God is able to act. And if He's able to act, then we should be those people who are fervent in prayer. Asking Him, may your hand be upon us. Well, as Jamin and others have already mentioned, today we're going to collect our Annie Armstrong offering. Annie Armstrong offering is, uh, supports our North American Mission Board, who particularly focuses on new works of church planning throughout our nation, trying to go to the most unreached cities, trying to establish outposts of light. And I've talked to some of these men, and there is opposition. And it takes various forms. But anyone who is eager to do the Lord's work is going to face trouble. And so I'm going to lead us in some prayer that we may be amazed by what the Lord may use this offering to do, the church plants to be planted, the harvest to come. And what we want to pray is verse 24, that the word of God would increase and multiply. What does that look like? It looks like people, right? How does it increase? People believe it. And people continue sharing it, and it multiplies. That's why we give to missions. We might say, oh, the $6,000. You think of the, the power and might and riches of the world. What, what could this do? We just got a small sampling of what a church gathered up in a, a little house, locked in a gate, praying can do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And once I finish praying, I'm going to ask guys to come up and ladies to come up and lead us in a couple of songs. And as we sing in closing, I want you to come up and if you have your offering, place it in one of these two baskets and continue worshiping our Lord. And the songs that we're going to sing are going to particularly focus on God's greatness, His power, that He is for us who can be against us. So let's ponder these things as we pray. Lord, right now I confess, Lord, we, we are a doubting people. I look at this passage and, and Lord, believe, but Lord, help my unbelief, we ask. That you would overcome our lack of faith, that you would... You would answer prayers that we don't deserve being answered. And Lord, that those things might drive us to more prayer. Wet our appetite. Lord, that we might be caught off guard. That you would do what is not expected. And that Lord, we would hear from one another and how you've acted in our midst. And, and Lord, that we would be like Rhoda, quick to, to receive your answered prayer. Lord, in particular, as we collect this offering, Lord, we pray for new churches. New churches that are going to be established this year. 
know, many on Easter Sunday was probably their first uh, gathering time. Lord, as these churches are seeking to preach the gospel to all different types of people, Lord, I pray that, that these churches would be gospel-centered, that when people come in, they would hear the good news of a crucified and risen Savior for them. Lord, I pray that Sunday after Sunday that these new churches would open up the Scriptures. Lord, I haven't planted a church but got really close. And I know the temptation for numbers is going to be strong. The temptation to trust in bells and whistles and schemes and strategies. But Lord, I pray that they would trust and your powerful word to go forth and that they would open up the scriptures Sunday after Sunday. They would go into homes and they would open up your word. That They would go into homeless shelters and jails and schools. That as you would open up these doors and that as you open doors, they would open your scripture. Lord, I pray for humble and godly leadership in these churches. I pray that you would use humble leadership to overcome the proud. And Lord, I pray, as I pray for us, that these churches that are started would be praying churches. Again, the temptation will be to have a slick website, not that we shouldn't do that, or a great logo, or a great catchy slogan, to have a killer band, all these things that you're told that you must have, but Lord, if they do not pray, they won't have you. And so, Lord, I pray that they would be a praying church. I think of already existing churches in our area that have just been planted over the last year. I think of, of Brad Walker and Redeemer Church just down the road who has, who is trying to reach many of the homeless in our community, many of the, the, the in poverty. And Lord, I pray that you would do an amazing thing through them as they reach and, and, and try to minister to the unlovable of our society. I think of Shay Allen, who, or that was the church you wanted to be planted in Sellersburg. Refuge Church, as they're seeking to, to impact the city and be involved and, and try to um, make a good name for themselves so that they can have a door for the gospel, I pray that you would answer their prayers. Lord, I think of Scott McDowell and City View Church in, in Indianapolis. Lord, I just pray that as they've been established, and I thank you for the fruit that you've given them, Lord, that you would continue to let the Word of God increase and multiply. That as they struggle with how to manage growth and how to handle children in daycare or, or child care, Sunday school and, and how they're going to handle the new numbers, Lord, I, I pray that you would give them wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would deliver your people from the evil one. As he schemes like a lion seeking whom he may devour, Lord, deliver us. And Lord, as he has gotten a foothold with the wealthy and the powerful and the mighty of our society, those of great fame and prestige, like Herod, who may love the praises of men, Lord, either convert them 
or show your glory and justice. Lord, that's our prayer. That you would do mighty and amazing things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Let the gold